asked his father for money to buy books. The bookseller used to come around to the town of Lubavitch and sell books every so often. And so he wanted, he used to get money, um, an allowance, but he, ran, he spent all his money, he wanted more money to buy more books. So he asked his father, the third Lubavitch Rebbe, for money for books. And so his father said, have you finished all the books that you own? And so he asked his father, did you finish all the books that you own? <laughs> and his father had like a whole library of bookshelves. And, like, oh, yeah. and he says, well, why don't you test me? So he randomly just picked a book off the shelf, a medieval Hebrew grammar book, actually. Which Rebbe is this? The Rebbe Marash testing the Tzemach Tzedek. And he just opened to a random page, and he started the page, and then Tzemach Tzedek repeated to say what it says on that page verbatim. And so then he says, when you know all of the books that you have, then you can buy more books. So. But, uh, I mean, just use the Because there's, there's an idea of owning your own. One of, the, one of the ideas in Judaism is to own your own books, based on the fact there's a mitzvah to write your own Sefer Torah or to own your own Sefer Torah. I need a bigger bookshelf. Okay. My bookshelf is double layered now, where possible. And then like there's stuff like stuck. Okay. Fine. So we are we are learning about how the the second soul is a part of God from above. And the first analogy was exhaling, right? That the idea of exhaling forcefully is that all of the innermost life force goes out, as opposed to speaking, especially just pronouncing the letter hey. Basically, nothing goes out. And that's the difference between God's investment into the creation, which would be like saying the letter hey, versus his investment in the godly soul, which is his entire being. Anyone have any questions that's not clear that before we move on? Okay, good. All right. Now we're going to get to the second analogy, which is the more primary analogy, the main analogy we're going to use. So we are at the top of the column, which is so allegorically speaking. So allegorically speaking, have the souls of Jews arisen in the divine thought. As it is written, my firstborn son is Israel, and ye are children unto the Lord your God. Sounds very biblical. That is to say, just as a child is is derived from his father's brain, so too, to use an anthropomorphism, the soul of each Israelite is derived from God's blessed be he thought and wisdom. Okay. So what is the second analogy of being a of the godly soul being a, truly a part of God? What does it say there? That it comes from his wisdom. That it well, do you notice that there's a bit of a tension here? It says, let's read this again. So allegorically speaking, have the souls of Jews arisen in divine thought, as it's written, My firstborn son is Israel. Does it mention anything about thought in that verse? It mentions children. Ye are children to the Lord your God. That is to say, just a child is derived from his father's brain. Children are derived from the father's brain? I don't that. What? That doesn't make sense. Okay. So, I have some explaining to do. Okay. What? I mean, that's clear. Everyone knows that children come from the father's brain. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna before we what? You probably know. 
You've learned Hasidus, that's why you... No, I've heard that in, like, in, in, in biology. You have learned in biology that children drive for the father's I mean, brain. No, I was like, how is that? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know what biology is. No, I think you linked it to Hasidus. I don't think he taught. It's part of the okay. No, it's not. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so the first thing I want to do is I want to point out that there's, a, there's an issue here is that it first starts being a thought and then moves on to children, right, which don't seem to be the same idea. Okay. So I want to talk about thought first. Now, everything arose in God's thought. Could someone give me a good argument to that? A good argument to, no, in favor of that. Defend that premise that everything arose in God's thought. If he didn't think of it, it wouldn't be here. Well, couldn't he create it without thinking about it? He spoke it. He must have thought it first. Why? Because. But why must? <laughs> why must? That's my, what I want to get at. Why the must? Why can't he just speak it into being? Why does he have to think about it? Everything starts with thought. Why? That's not human understanding Isn't of what, how it works. A source saying that? <laughs> That's not an argument. <laughs> I can also make sources. Why would it be the case that just because God speaks something into being, he had to think about it first? Because he wanted it. Very good. If God were to speak something to being, okay, right now we're going to forget about the fact that God isn't like a person, okay? So imagine God is a person for a second. If God were to speak something to being and he didn't think about it first, and that would mean that that thing's creation was accidental, was not intentional, right? That make sense? Okay, now I can then strip away all of the anthropomorphism, all of the fact. At the end of the day, does God do things by accident? So in as much as God doesn't do things by accident, in some metaphoric sense, God must have thought about it before he did it. Whatever it means for God to think about it, I don't know. But whatever qualifies for God intentional versus accidental, that's clearly the case. God doesn't do things by mistake unintentionally. So in that sense, everything arose in God's thought. So in that case, there's nothing special about a Jew. Why does speech have to not be a mistake at all? What? Like, why do I speak about being a mistake at No. If you said something without thinking about it first, okay, that means you did not intend to say that, right? So that, that, that means it's accidental. And that would basically mean that God creates the world in a... I mean, this is, this, is, this is basic heresy. One of the basic heresies that Judaism denies is that the creator doesn't actually intend the world to be the way it is. There were ancient philosophies that believed that there was a creative force, but that creative force doesn't actually intend for a thing to be any particular way. It just accidentally happened that way. It's arbitrary. The idea that God intends for the world to be the way he makes the world means that there's some metaphorically speaking forethought so clearly in that sense the godly soul is not unique everything God had to think about or intend before he made it otherwise you know it would be arbitrary it would be accidental it would happen to things yeah wouldn't you wouldn't you be able to say that God's form of speaking could include that you could you could but then what you're saying is that he's you know killing two birds with one stone you're saying that both concepts are true. There is the intention and there's bringing, the, there's bringing about. Right? When we say God speaks, that's his method of bringing it about. And thought is the fact that he intends it to be the case. So clearly, when the Altarba says in Tanya that the souls of the Jews arose in divine thought, um, he means a different kind of thought. 
Okay. Now, this idea, by the way, that the, the, the um, souls of the Jews arose in divine thought, this is not an idea of the Alter Rebbe. This is actually brought up in the Medrash. Okay. Um, so he's actually just quoting an idea. Okay. Now, he's equating this being, this, that the souls arising in God's thought with the souls being God's children. And then he compares that to the idea that just like physical children come from the brain of the father, which we all have come to the conclusion we don't know what that means. Okay. So we are going to take a side trip away from the Tanya for a moment, and we're going to learn some philosophy. Okay? There are two Hebrew words that I want to teach you. Um, can I write stuff on the board? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
what is it? What what is it to be a marker? What is it to be a person? That word is mahus. So you see know the word man it? How do you use it? Okay. So, and I'm going to now give you the English. Is that hair? That's hair. Hey. The fancy philosophical word for that in English is essence. So when I ask you what makes what, what's a marker, and I ask you, okay, well, but what is a marker? And then you keep trying to. Do it. I'm asking you to get at the essence of the spelled essence. It's a C instead of C. Okay. So, when somebody when somebody asks what something is, they sometimes just ask for the name of it. But if they're asking the philosophical question, they want to know what is the essence of the thing. So if I say, if I say in Hebrew, Mazar, I say English, what is this? I could be asking for the name that refers to the mohos, that refers to the essence, or I could be asking the philosophical question, what is the essence of this thing? What makes it be what it is? What's its essence or what's its mahus? Okay? So this is an important word. Now. Can everyone? Yeah? So would you say ma You could say ma ha yeah. If you want to clarify that you were asking the philosophical question, you could say ma ha what, what is the essence of, in, in fact, this philosophy? What is the essence of love? Like, what is love? Like they're asking for the mokos. They're not like they're not like unfamiliar with the meaning of the word in one place. They want to get the real essence of it. So what the so what it really is. That's just a fancy word for what it really is. Okay. Good? Alright. Now. Okay. Now, I want everyone to find the marker their eyes. Can you find the mark with your eyes? Mm -hmm. Mark around and you find it with your eyes? Okay. So I know this is the masculine, ignore that. So what's up? Yeah. Someone found the marker. Okay. Now who knows in the verbs you can go from a passive verb and an active verb? Yeah. Okay. So like he said versus it was said. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Passive voice. Passive voice. In Hebrew Instead of he found, say that it is found. Put it in the beginning. Nimsa. Okay? That makes sense? That's just the grammar. Now, what's interesting about this word nimsa is this word nimsa actually has a second meaning. It also means. Now, why would the word for it is found also be the word for it exists? Because once something is found, it exists. So if no one finds it, it doesn't exist? Yeah. Well, like Schrodinger's cat exists. It's because it's not like Schrodinger's. It's not like Schrodinger's. Schrodinger's cat exists. It's been important for Schrodinger. Once you find something, it proves its existence. It just exists as a wave function. And on a class wave function. Okay, fine. Once you find something, you can prove its existence without having its existence. If it doesn't exist, you can't find 
See, the it issue is, the reason, the, reason, the reason why you're having a hard time with this is that you're using the word exist the way you're used to using the word exist in English, and not the way that, not the way the word originally comes from. And so, or even the fact that the way the word existence is used originally more philosophically. What does it mean that something exists? It means it can be found. For instance, what is the difference between the marker in my right hand and the marker in my left hand? Okay, but, but don't use the word existence. You can find a marker in my right hand, and you can't find a marker in my Okay. So in other words, and everything has two aspects. There's the essence of it, and there's the fact that you can find it. Now, are there essences that you can't find? Yeah. For instance, now there are essences you can't find because they're 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 not they're not found here, but they're found somewhere else. So the marker is not found in my left hand; it's found in my. Or another way of saying that in English is that a marker exists in my right hand and doesn't exist in my. So existence just means the fact that you can find that essence. Now, in this case, you found it with your eyes; you saw it. Are there other ways of finding things? Touching. Touching. What are other ways of finding Smelling. Things? Smelling. What else? You're all your five senses. Okay, what else? Hearing. Those are five senses. Anything else? Thought. Thought. You can understand things. In other words, finding, when you broaden it out, means that someone can come into contact with it. So there's what it is, and there's the fact that it can be contacted, it can be interacted with, it can be. Does it have to be a person to come to there we go. Look at all that. Things that, things that are nimsa relative to each other, right? The board is nimsa to this, that's why it bounced back. Then nimsa just means that, that something is something can be interacted with. And by the way, something can be interacted with in one sense and another. Can you interact with ideas? Yeah. Can you interact with physical objects? Yeah. Can you do them in this, is the same thing? Can physical objects interact with ideas? I mean, they can oh, yeah. try. Like if a book we're has in the idea in it. Really? No, it's because like you read it, which has that's the idea, true. but that's without weird. reading it, you don't get the idea. But or the idea just stimulates your mind to process words, and somehow those words get. It's weird how you get ideas out of books, but there's no ideas in the books. Not like the book has ideas in it. The book just has little ink spools. Which yeah. Which make you think of words. But you wouldn't with that. Somehow, someone you else think had to write gets ideas into, into your mind. I mean, so you a person who writes a book is creating a code for the idea they want to write. That's exactly what you're doing. But the Torah doesn't have ideas. That's why, when you the written, that's why you make a difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah, the same thing as the words, not the ideas, which is why when you read the Torah and show, it doesn't matter that nobody understands it. But it does matter that the words have the right shape, that are pronounced the right way. That's, that's the difference between the written and the oral Torah is that in the written Torah, that the, the idea is really secondary. The oral Torah is all about ideas, in which case the words don't really matter, as long as the ideas be committed, don't the words to use. And the written Torah, the idea is that these words, these squiggles, these sounds, the whole, the effect of whether you get any ideas out of them. It's the exact one Okay, getting back to this. So something exists in the sense that it can be found. Okay. But if something's not physical, how do you know that someone is coming in contact with it? Like, if 
They're not. The little people actually do that. You can pick up. I don't know. I don't know. There's a point, like so the child psychologist. There's a point which they, they get number sense. There's a class of and spiritually, like, well, is spiritually really a separate thing? Is it not? I don't know, right? But things can exist in different ways, which just means that they have different modes of being interacted with. Numbers cannot be interacted with physically. If you've ever taken an advanced math class, that's the first thing they teach you, is that if you can picture it, and you're drawing a diagram to show that you're right, you're not doing math anymore. Um, is there, like, the concept of family? Is that, that exist? Well, this isn't a so there's a con there's this area of philosophy called metaphysics which deals with what kinds of essences have what kinds of existences. Now according to Torah, the answer is yes. But Torah is big on genealogy. Right. What, what are the ways that we interact with the family? The most obvious? Like that's what, the, that's what you're saying. You're saying if the concept of family exists, then we have to have some sort of contact with it. The most obvious is the fact that Allahah a lot of love is very serious on all the ways we get it. Such as we put people to death for marrying people that they're not allowed to marry based on family relations. That's how serious we treat the reality of family. Honor, there's no family to love your parents. Just kind of love all Jews, but Okay, now. We will get back to the time eventually. This marker, which exists. By virtue of what does it exist? In other words, what's in the marker in my right hand, the marker in my left hand? You can find the marker in my right hand. You can see it, right? Okay. But what is it you're seeing? Are you seeing the markerness of the marker? You're seeing the matter, the plastic. And because the plastic has a size and a shape and an opaqueness, that's what allows you to see it, right? What if I had a marker that wasn't made out of any matter? It didn't have a size, it didn't have a shape, it didn't have a color. So what was it? Right. Then that would just be like the abstract concept of a marker. It wouldn't be a, a marker that you could read on, right? You don't call that a marker. Though. Right. You don't call it. Because in order for something to exist, it has to have qualities that make it findable. Okay? So there's a very important Hebrew word. It shows up in Hasidus all the time. That word is Mitzias. And it translates as existence. What is existence? Existence doesn't mean it exists or it doesn't exist. It mean, existence means what are the qualities that make this essence findable? So start describing the existence of the marker. I mean, that's easier than describing the essence. Plastic. Plastic. Green. Green. Gray. Cylindrical, right? That's, that, that's pretty easy. Yeah, but here's the thing. Like, if I told you that there's this cylindrical green gray plastic object, do you now know it's a marker? No. 
And is it true that a marker has to be green, plastic, cylindrical? Yeah. So you see that there's a lot of messiness between the relationship between the essence of what something is and what properties make it findable. So for instance, when the Rambam says that angels aren't physical, it's because what makes angels findable doesn't isn't something you can pick up with the senses. They don't have color, they don't have taste, they don't make noise. They can be picked up with the mind, but they can't be picked up with the eyes. So they have some other kind of mitzias. So mitzias is a, it's a very interesting kind of thing. It's not just a big sister doesn't exist. Okay? Now, does this make a little bit of sense to people? So, I am just thinking about angels. Let's not use angels. I'm using angels as an example of something that doesn't physically use. Let's take you a test. I'm going to now think of something, and you tell me stuff you know absolutely true. I'm going to say something about it. You tell me something that's absolutely for sure true about what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a tree. What do you know for sure about this tree? Photosynthesis. Very good. Why? Because photosynthesis, right, is part of, at least in trees as we physically know them to be, right? That's essential. That's part of what a tree is. What? Not at all times. Well, it's part of what it is, what it's actually doing it right now. It's separate. Okay. What else do you know for sure about this tree? That's common. Very good. What else do you know? That's some sort of root system. What else? No, you don't know that. Halakhiti. That's what? What? Halakhiti is not considered a truth. It doesn't have those. I, I, I wanted to do things that are biological. You're right. And one of the things that one of the things that gets into is like what, at what point is something a truth versus not a truth? Right. Now, let's, let's do another example. And this is maybe a little trickier. Okay. I'm thinking about a dog. What do you know for sure about the dog? It's an animal. It can breathe. Yeah. I know that it can be a dead dog. It has four legs. No. No. Yes. Yes. It can be. It can have three. Oh wait, wait. What did you just say? What did you say? You said something very important. You said a very profound statement. If it's missing a leg, right? So what you're saying is the dog has four legs. It could be one of its legs went missing. What if it was born with? So then what you say is one of its legs didn't develop. Right. We don't say right. Dogs have four legs. If that this dog doesn't have a fourth leg. It's because something went wrong, right? So the four legs goes into the fact, the essence. Now, sometimes those all four legs show up in Mitzias, and that's great, but sometimes the fourth leg doesn't develop, gets chopped off. So it, the fourth leg is missing in its existence, but it's still true of, right? That's how we determine whether it's me should be there or not. Right? If I say, you know, I, I met this interesting dog, and it, and it told me, um, about its existential crisis that it had while reading Shakespeare. I mean, this clearly some sort of fantasy, right? Why? <laughs> or I have to wait for jealousy. Because it's Why? not the essence of the dog. Because there's nothing in the essence of a dog that it could ever interact with like that, right? Now, what if I said I encountered a person and they and they and they ran around on all fours naked uh, and 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 went woof 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 whenever they wanted something? Yeah. You could believe that. Yeah. That could happen. Yeah. Right? But what would you include about that person? They're a child. Either they're a they're child. Either they're engaged in some sort of interesting social 
situation like acting, or there's something wrong with them, right? Because that existence, while it couldn't, it, it doesn't really reflect and manifest the essence of what a person is. Does this make any sense? So it, whenever you learn anything in Chassidus, everything has these two aspects, the muhus, the essence of what it is, versus Matthias, in what way it exists, in what way it can be manifest and interacted with, contacted, etc. Good? Okay. Now. Telling you. 
On the other hand, if you, you understand that the essence of being a woman is whoever you and your existence define as your ideal, then it would be utterly ludicrous for me to tell you what the ideal woman would be. So when the Torah goes around telling you the ideal woman is, the ideal man is, the ideal this is, the ideal that is, clearly the Torah is taking the viewpoint of what? God has a clear sense of what the essence of everything is, and he wants our existence to reflect that, and it's up to us to make it happen which is very opposite the modern notion is you exist that you can now aspire to define whatever you are on your own terms. But isn't that kind of selfishness to assume that we can know kind of the essence of something? No, we're saying, so, so that we're not going to say that we know the essence of it. We're going to say that God knows the essence of things, and God reveals that, and that's why Torah is so important. Because one of the issues that the modern people got right that the ancient people got wrong is there is no good argument that you can make from your experience of existence to determine what the true essence of things is. Like, if you want to empirically figure out, gain knowledge, you cannot use existence to determine essence. You can't look at something. Like, think about this. How do you know, really, that a dog is supposed to have four legs? Because every dog you saw had four legs? Maybe all the dogs you saw were messed up. How do you know? Right? The only good way that you can know what the essence of things are is you have to be the creator of reality. Isn't that what science is? No. Science has gotten rid of essence except as a matter of convenience in terms of like the scientist doing his methods. Science only deals with quantitative let's see, it's which means things you can count and they form into That's what makes science work. We avoid our problems. So it works like this. The idea that, that who's to say that I'm right is a very good objection if my notion of what the essence of a woman is, the essence of a man is, is based on my experience of reality. Because who says that the Mitzias is doing a good job of reflecting the most? If all, every person you met is crazy, then your notion of what a person ought to be is going to be wrong. So if you want to say that essence is true and absolute, and that the, we should aspire that the Mitzias, the way things is, should reflect that essence, you need to have revelation. You need to have the creator of reality actually tell you what they are. But if you want to make an argument from your own observation, then all you're just saying is, well, that's what I'm used to. So I think that that's what it's ought to be. In which case, the modern criticism is perfectly valid. Okay. So now, if it makes sense for me, based on my life experience, for you to tell you what an ideal woman is, does it make sense for the creator of reality, who, who created the reality of what a woman is, to define, to say what an ideal woman is? And could it theoretically be possible that he told me and didn't tell you? Theoretically, not saying it's likely, but it's theoretically possible. And vice versa, maybe he told you what an ideal man is. He didn't tell me. It's the idea of revelation. Okay. Is the essence unchanging? The essence is unchanging. Because the essence is what makes the thing be what it is. The essence changes, I mean, that basically means the thing is no longer. Okay. Good? Alright. Now. This clock is accurate. So far, we just did philosophy, enough to understand some Hasidus. Um, I'm going to do one little fun thing, and then we're going to do the controversial stuff. Okay. Does God have an essence? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, there is what it is to be God. Like, whatever God is, he's whatever he is, right? Does God have an existence? Let's think about this. Does God look like anything? No. Does he taste like anything? Size, shape, color? Is he a particular kind of an idea? To a degree. Okay, this goes back to what we said yesterday. Remember when I said that God is not, right? The main thing about God is not that he's the creator of the world. 
do we have a notion of ultimate cause, creator, or source of morality? Are those notions we can conceive of? Okay. But are those God? Are, are do we, if, if God didn't do any of those things, would he still be God? So the Rambam actually says, and this is codified in Jewish law, God doesn't really have an existence. Well, we said we, don't, we aren't able to see everything. That's right, because the thing is, there's nothing, God doesn't have an existence, there's nothing about God that makes God interactive. The only thing God is just God, he's just pure God. Everything else has like two elements, there's what it is and then how it presents in reality. God at his core is just God. And so God has to choose to have a mitzvah. And God wants to just be God, then just be God. Now, could God choose to make himself have a, be discovered as a creator or a source of morality? Sure. But if he doesn't have those things, he's still God. So in his essence, in his essence, he doesn't really need any, anything else. Now, when God comes into existence, and we can actually interact, we can actually come God, we have a name for that. Does anyone know what name that is? God as God takes on some sort of conceit, some sort of form by which you can interact with it and experience it. What that's called? What? I mean, Revelation is a process that happens. What is the name of that thing? This is called. Shina. You ever heard of the Shina? The Shina is the divine presence. You've ever heard of the Shekinah? What does divine presence mean? It means the fact that God has some sort of existence such that you can interact with God. So it's like the Shekinah is resting on the Mishkan. What? So the Shekinah, it's like, it, what more he's making his qualities findable. He's making, no, he's making himself have qualities that are findable. What kind of existence Well, it depends. But we speak about Hashem, okay? Now, is there more to Hashem than just what is revealed? Yeah. Okay, so you ever heard the phrase, you want to unite Hashem with the Shekhinah? Yeah. You ever heard this phrase before? Okay, there's a concept of going on in Hashem with Hashem. That basically means is we want all the essence to be fully revealed. We want everything about God. Okay, one last thing for you, controversial. Everyone knows that Shekhinah is feminine? Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Wait, can you spell it in Hebrew? I can't spell anyway. Never trust my spell. The Rambam uses this phrase. He says, God exists without existence. Meaning, now I'm not saying there's no God, but this thing you conceive of as existence, qualities by which something can be found and known, God doesn't really have that. The way the Zohar puts it is no thought can grasp. No thought can grasp. It means if you're thinking about it, it's not God. Wait, who says that? The Zohar. The Shina, right? So the question is how does that come? So now we get all the fun stuff. Theology and mysticism. How do you make all that together? Which I'm not going to explain. But I think that's why it's an interesting topic. Okay. Now, how many parents do people have? Two. Why? Why did God set it up that people have two parents? Because for something to really be, it has how many qualities? How many aspects to it? Two. It has a mogos. And it has a. See, it's this. Now, let's start with the obvious. 
Your existence is the result of who? Your mother. That's fairly evidence, right? No, it's not. No, but it's not clear because it's not just that. Literally, literally the mother, literally the mother makes the fact that there is the fact that you can see a person is the result of what the mother's body does entirely. Oh, we're getting to the brain. We're doing the controversial part. I'm working up to the controversial part. So, and by the way, for this purpose, we're going to ignore biology. The reason we're going to ignore biology is because the way biology is taught is by trying to reduce phenomena to your eyes to things you can see the microscope and then the things you need to microscope for. And we want to use the opposite, take phenomena we see with our eyes and connect them back to abstract ideas. We're going to think about this metaphysically rather than chemically. Okay? So, there's a person. This person, which I see, they're this tall, they're this wide, right? I have children with this, but there's a person there, right? They're, they, have an, they have an existence. Where did that existence come from? It was literally put together by the woman. And interestingly, she can do that passively, which lives her life for nine months and passively is putting together a person. But that's interesting. But that's what happens. So existence comes from the <laughs> mother. Okay. By the way, this goes back to yesterday. We spoke about the fact that since being Jewish now means your body has to be Jewish. Therefore, being Jewish depends on which parent? Your mother. Okay. Mitzias, existence, meaning the qualities by which you can be found attractive, those are being built up and developed by the mother. Okay. Well, then that means what's the father's contribution? Then, or the essence. Okay. Now, I am skipping all of the in-between steps because they don't matter for our purposes. Okay? Okay, so the essence. Well, we're talking about the essence of what? The essence of a person, right? Not in the case of a person, right? Okay, so we have a name for the essence of a person. What is that called? Soul. They don't want to avoid soul, that gets complicated. Two souls. A name in English? Yeah, in English, a regular word that people use. Humanity. What is humanity? What makes someone? What makes someone? Human. 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 Right? That's what humanity is, right? He's lost his humanity! Right? What does that mean? He's got not in touch with what makes a person human. Okay, so that's the, the essence of a person just called humanity. They're humanity. Right? Not humanity as a collective name, humanity as an you're in humanity. Okay. Now, where you have the ability to have, where's the place where your humanity resides, to access you, you experience your own humanity is in your brain. brain. Okay, so where's your humanity found? Where is it most accessible? I mean, it's not that your humanity isn't in your fingers, but it is concentrated. In fact, you actually experience yourself as being located here, kind of radiating out of your body. So your humanity is kind of centered here, the radiating out of your body. Okay. So if the father's providing the essence, where does the essence reside? So then where does the essence of this child come from? The brain of the father. That's the essence of this child. Where does that, what turns that essence from some sort of abstract notion of humanity into an actual person that you can interact with? The mother. Now they have to, there has to be a connection to the mother-father, but, but I'm just one of the roles. So the father 
is providing the essence, and the mother is what's turning that essence into an actual reality by giving it existence. That's how Siddhas understands procreation. Now, are there in-between steps along the way? Like, how does the essence get out of the mind of the father and into the child? There's a lot of interesting things. I'm not getting into all of that. But when the Altima says here that the, that the son ride the rose in the, in, the, in, the, in the mind of the father, the brain of the father, he's not speaking about the fact that like the little physical children in the brain are going to get extracted out. The brain is the part of the body which is, houses the, 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 the essence of the person, their humanity, and their radiates out. And somehow, through a very interesting process, that is able to then be transmitted to the mother, and the mother turns that into a whole new person. Jewish mom, not Jewish dad, what makes the baby have a Jewish essence if it's coming from the mother? So, so there, there's an idea in Kabbalah of, so, so we're going to get this a little later, but the godly soul is only good for parents, basically. The godly soul is only good for parents. And since the body is reproduced by the mother, the father is not the father. Are there like spiritual consequences to that? Yes. That's a good idea. But since godly souls are enough to do with parents and the body is being generated entirely by the mother, it doesn't take away from the Jewish soul. What does it mean that like your essence? Well, we have to differentiate here. The essence, what we have to confuse is the essence of the person as a person, and there's the essence of the person as a Jew, right? So yeah, so for instance, in Judaism, we have an idea of tribal affiliation, which is basically extended family. How many tribes are there? Well, of course, there's 13, because it's Judaism. So which tribe are you? You might not even be a tribe. It's not all Jews are members of tribes. Why? Well, because to be a tribe, being a tribe means that you have to you have to get your essence from one of the twelve sons of Yaakov, which means your father's 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 father going all the way back has to be one of the twelve sons of Yaakov, and if he's not. And therefore, all the things that are accorded to those particular tribes don't apply to that person. So nowadays, because we are in exile, we don't have a temple, we don't have ancestral plots of land, we don't notice this, we don't care, so we treat a convert, but the descendants of converts are basically the same way as a Jew without a colonial baby. Aren't we saying about a convert also that they always live here? That's what the godly soul But in terms of the, the, in terms of the, of the essence and contribution of the father, there is a thing, is that, that why is, why is that whether or not a man is a Kohen, or for that matter, a woman is considered to be a Koheness, determined by the father? Because that essential character comes through, has nothing to do with the body, it's something to do with the essence of that person, and that's transferred from the father. There's a lot more to explain about this, but what I want you to understand is if you read this line, and you, you, you immediately imagine that we're talking about some sort of like biological thing, I'm not saying the biology can't then be layered on top of this, and it can, there's explanations in Citus about that, even should do a little bit of it later. But the basic thing is the father has an essence. That essence resides in his mind. That's the place in the brain, the mind and the brain. And then that somehow gets transferred to the mother, and the mother turns that essence into a into a person who can be seen, who can interact, who has a mind of their own, and is a person in every tangible sense just the way the father was. Now, those things that directly relate to their essence, therefore, are the father, and therefore Jewish law 
cares about patching and setting up certain things, and those things are related to the fundamental existence of the mother. Jewishness, mother. Tribal affiliation, father. Inheritance, father. Laws of who can marry and not marry, by the both. So lineage, it's not father and mother are not considered, lineages of both matter, but for different reasons depending on is this issue relating more to the existence, or to the essence, or it applies to the both. And that's what the author is getting. So what's the total? The total. The essence. 
essence of God being given over to his bride. Now what happens when the man gives over his essence to the wife? That essence gets turned into only reality, right? God gives his essence over to us, and then we create a new reality called shit. Whoa! Okay. Yes. Is there something that, like, I don't know if this is like being overly biological, but like in the sperm in the sperm bank, do they just have like vials of like humanity? The yes. Which is why molecular <laughs> sperm banks are like very problematic. Right. Yes. But like legitimately, that has like something of like yes. the essence yes. of humanity. Yes. Yes. You know, you got you're familiar with the laws. Of, you're familiar with. You, you've you've heard of the laws of going to mikvah. Like, yeah. like, like women have to go to make fun of the There are differing laws, not in the same sense again, because essence and existence aren't the same, but that have to do with the spiritual nature of spring. And so the same way like women when they menstruate, they become impure. There's a similar law that applies to spring as well. It's not the same. Because there's an anti What's the relationship to if a man wants to go into the temple, yeah. so the same way a woman, in order to be purified, has to go to mikvah after uh, menstruating, yeah. so contact with sperm requires a man, or one for that matter, to go to mikvah before they eat truma, go into the temple, etc. It's not, they're not, they don't have the same laws because it's more disconnected. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the idea that there's life there and the, the, the loss of life creates this kind of impurity that has to be dealt with, that's 100% true about both the genetic material from the man and the genetic material from the The way the Torah sees the genetic material is just the like, capsule to carry these spiritual notions. Okay. okay. So that's what the altar of a meant right now that we're now or later. When he says that the, the son, in this case it would actually be son or child, it's child, doesn't really matter, is derived from the father's brain. What does that mean? That the essence of the child comes from the essence of the father. Practically what this means is why are you a human being and not a chimpanzee? Metaphysically. Because your dad is human. Why are you an actual human being as opposed to just some theoretical spiritual essence of humanity? Because of your mother. So is this why like what you're talking about So there's two reasons. One has to do with that. The other is that there's an else idea of going to make for just adds impurity independent of anything else. There's a concept in Kabbalah. That would be because like a woman also, if she went to the No, because there's a prohibition of unmarried women going to mikvah. Okay, but like for a married woman, like if she went to the mikvah three days in a row, is that any special reason going on? I can't think of the reason why not. It's just not practiced. I never, I don't, um, I'm sure there probably, if it's not practiced, there probably is some reason. I just haven't encountered it. But for an unmarried woman, it's actually forbidden to go to a mikvah. Um, actually, no, no, no. There's a problem for a woman to go to a mikvah during the day at all, even a married woman. During the daytime, yeah. What? No, because there's an issue of, since the laws of, since a woman, if she's going for menstruating reason, has to go at night, we don't want women to mistakenly think that going to the day is okay. Basically, how do you know how to practice Judaism? It's a very important thing. How do you know how to practice Judaism? Because you see what other, what Jews who practice Judaism do. Well, what happens if they're doing something and you don't appreciate why they're doing it? Then you pick up the wrong thing. 
right? So if you pick up your mother or your sister going to mikvah during the day, then what do you start to believe? That that's a perfectly valid time to go to mikvah. That actually used to happen historically, and then so the rabbis made a ban on going to mikvah women going to mikvah during the day. There's a lot of things that only make sense if you realize that 90% of how we know how to practice Judaism doesn't come as we studied in a book, but because we looked at our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and our uncles and our rabbi and our rebbetzin when we saw what they did. And so it's not enough to do something that's okay. It has to be something that also doesn't give off the wrong impression. So there's a prohibition of women going to mikvah during the day. So between those two things, it would start to make sense. And going, you know. Spiritually, I can't immediately off the top of my head think of one. But there probably is, because generally when the common practice that way, there's usually a book that has the spiritual core reason for why that is, but I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have other things to do with their Yes, that would make sense. Okay. Fine. Okay. So now let's put this all together. Okay. So, well, if. So when we say thought here, we're not thinking about like the fact that, like normal thought. What kind of thought was the altar speaking about? Have you ever thought about yourself? I don't mean like you thought like, oh, I like chocolate. I mean, <laughs> thought about like yourself in a certain sort of deep way, like who am I really fundamentally? Things that touch your, your core of who you are, you know, that get at your humanity. And that kind of thought, you're accessing that same place that a father is drawing from when he gives over his essence to have a child. Even if that's unconsciously? In fact, it's almost always unconsciously. Right. That's the thing is, those deep thoughts are very rarely you have conscious reflexive awareness, reflexive conscious awareness of them. They say, I am now thinking about my deep inner self. Like, that doesn't usually happen. In fact, if you're thinking like that, you're probably not thinking. Right. Um, it, 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 in fact, it, it's very often in, involves a loss of reflexive thought. Reflexive thought means that you, the, the fact that you're aware that you're thinking. This kind of thought is so deep, so internalized, you're not even aware of it. That's the place that the father draws out from when he gives over his essence to have a child. That's the kind of thought we're talking about. So when God kind of gets in touch with what does it really mean to be God, it's that essence that he is then giving over and duplicating into the godly soul. So what does it mean the godly soul is? It's as godly like God. Like what, what, what is a, from, again, from the father's perspective, the mother's different, we're gonna to get to the mother later in Tanya. What is the father doing when he has a child? Metaphysically. He has an essence and what is he doing with it? Giving it over. And now how many, and now how many instantiations of that essence are? There? So that means that how many versions of them of him are there? Two. Okay. As many kids he has. As many of our, for two, right? So when, from the perspective of a father having a son or having a daughter means that he's having just another version of, which is, this goes why inheritance in Jewish law goes. And strangely speaking, men actually really do feel this way about their children. They really do feel that their children are them. And, and how does a woman feel? Is this why men are narcissistic? <laughs> I don't know all the way men are narcissistic, but maybe. This one, men are what? Narcissistic. Wait, so I have the same essence as my father, even though I am essentially of a different gender, which is really important. Right, because gender has more to do with existence. Wait, you mentioned you know, like, why are you not a chicken? Because your father's not a chicken, but also because your mother's not. Well, it doesn't work. You can't. Right, but the 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 the. the, the the thing that is being 
duplicated is the essence of the father. The one doing the duplicating is the mother. Now, God set it up that chimpanzees can't produce humans. Neither can chimpanzees go off human essences because they don't have them, nor can chimpanzees take human essences they've received and turn them into human beings. So, but you're right, you need a human on both ends. But, okay, and that, that's, that, that plays in why, for instance, in, in Torah we, we speak about daughters being belonged to their father's family, not their mother's family. Okay? This is, so a lot of the like, social stuff and the lachas of these things, there is a, there's a metaphysical parallel to all of this. Like parts of that process can be started in tubes and machines with certain like lights on the on yeah. the like, baby and all this stuff. Like that part actually is being shown that it's not necessarily like not that it's human but have human baby, but like you know, but you need this. So I mean, you need the egg. Yeah, but it, it's so, it's so. actually like research coming out, like totally tangential on their for gay male couples. They're starting to figure out a way to take like sperm from two men and put it together and something like this. It's like so, you can take a piece of your skin and take the DNA from it and make the yeah any you can take the sperm from it. Okay, so I want to say something about I want I want to I want to say something about how God created the world. This is a very important thing. The way God created the world is that the world is supposed to be a self-contained system and at the same time be the embodiment of something higher and larger than itself. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you an analogy. Okay? If you watch a movie, you can watch the movie on, in two ways. I mean, there's more than two ways, but for our purpose, there are only two ways. You can watch the movie and you can allow the reality that has been created by the movie to be taken as real and allow yourself to, you know, believe it and absorb into it and for the two hours you're watching the movie, I'm not endorsing watching movies but for the two hours you're watching the movie what's happening in the movie is real right now and in a sense it, it, it is real because what, what's happening is a way of bringing out certain themes and emotions and experiences right and they're just being embodied by these, these things going on now is, there's a whole other way of watching a movie which is as a filmmaker Right? and examining the craft of the special effects, the directing and the acting, right? Now, if you watch the movie one way, can you simultaneously watch the movie the other way? No. Okay. God created the world in a similar way. Can you examine the world and look for how can we understand how the world works as a self-contained system? Well, that, you can look at the world that way. You can also look at the world and say, how can we see the world as reflecting and embodying some higher reality? Okay. Now, when you're learning chassidus, which way is chassidus going to explain and look at the world? That second way. If you want to build a bridge or cure Tay-Sachs, what's the, probably the better way of looking at, at the world? The first way. Okay. Now, is it true that if you have a very deep and broad mind, it's theoretically possible like, to... to Bring it all together, yeah, but that's, for lack of words, messianic. So when you're learning, when you're learning these things, and we're speaking about things in the level which Chassidus deals with, 
is the level of the world that's experienced normally by everyday people and how that reflects and embodies spiritual truths. What happens when you start messing with the physical world as a self-contained system? And to what degree is it going to reflect those truths anymore? Is an open question. Right? So you can't learn chassidus like it's science, nor should you do science like it's chassidus. They're kind of different ways of looking at things. They're very parallel they're in the sense that two lines that don't really meet. No, as long as your mind can, 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 can keep track of things. It's like you can enjoy a really good movie and be a filmmaker, right? You just have to have a kind of mental discipline not to, you know, to allow yourself to enjoy the movie and not critique it or to critique it when you're supposed to be critiquing it rather than enjoying it, right? Um, now, there's a third area, which is halacha, which is how we're supposed to navigate the complexities of the real world in light of the fact the world is supposed, is supposed to reflect these higher things. And therefore, there are many things that you can physically do, but the Torah prohibits. I'll give you one example. We'll end on this. Is, according to the Torah, the essence of a man and the essence of a woman are bound up with their ability to procreate. You notice how I've, I've talked about what makes men and women different is the role they play in procreation. Men convey essence and women translate that essence into a new existence. Okay, so that means the, the key difference is tied up to procreation. Well, it made perfect sense that procreation is like a very important part of what makes a man a man and a woman. Okay, physically, can you take away the ability to procreate from a man? Yes. Is he still a man? Yes. Can you take away the ability to procreate from a woman? Is she still a woman? Yes. yes. Okay, now here's a question. Are you allowed to? So Torah does not allow it. Broad rule. Obviously, there's always like little fine print. So there's really three things. There's the physical world. What, what can you do with the physical world as a self-contained system? How does the physical world reflect these higher truths? And then how should I navigate their, you know, the gap between you know, what the world is supposed to reflect versus what the world, the flexibility in the physical world. What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And then you have halacha. So you really have to have three things. You have to know how the world works. Otherwise, you can't, like, you know, doctors and bridges and things. You have to know what the world is supposed to represent, and you have to know how to navigate those, the difference between those two things, and that's where halacha comes in. What we're learning is chassidus, so I'm not going to bring up any of the other two areas unless it helps highlight and clarify the chassidus. Okay. I mean, you can go even further. You can clone a person, right? If you clone sheep, there's no reason biologically you can't clone a person, Right? And remember, I started out the whole thing that how many parents does a person have to have two? You say, well, cloning. No one said, well, you can only you can, you get by with one parent, right? Theoretically. But then you learn about how, like, what makes a person, like, all the senses of a person come from okay. the soul. Okay, so now the other thing, that, that's one thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say, um, and then tomorrow we'll get more into what this actually, you know, take these two analogies and start fleshing them out as to what it means about the godless soul. The other thing I want to say is like this. We are really bad at predicting how messing with the physical world is going to affect things. How it's going to affect things. For instance, I will just point out a few interesting things. Before the invention of television, the looks of somebody had no, no influence as to whether or not they would become president of the United States. And now, I think they tend to be a very good predictor. I think the statistics are like insane that if you just do like a, if you if you do a statistical analysis of which pe candidate people find more attractive, that's a very good predictor of who wins presidential um, debates, and also is in, uh, not as good, but it also a pretty good predictor of 
um, who's going to win president. It, it, it shifts pretty decently on who's going to actually win the office. Interesting. What? Height, because height is one of those factors. Yeah, People, right, which is why the first presidential debate that was televised, um, the people who listened to it on radio had a totally different experience. And, and this was something people don't, and we've now learned that and people use that to our advantage and to disadvantage, okay? We now have things called social media. How does social media affect a person's development? Do we know? What happens if you take a child and you raise them in a society built around social media? Value. How do they how do they develop in their middle ages? How do their marriages last? We don't know. Everybody has their opinions, but we don't know, right? What did the, what you know? What is what did the invention? What was the invention? The printing press going to do? The invention of the printing press. Most historians will say was directly um, connected to many things, including um, the Protestant Reformation and the idea of religion being a personal based idea rather than something having to do with God on high, and that totally changed the Western world. But nobody invented the printing press and say, ooh, I'm going to totally upend the Catholic Church by inventing a printing press. So we're really bad at knowing how things are going to manipulate. And it could end up being, and this often is the case, that we think we can manipulate something and keep everything else the same. It doesn't work like that. And I'll give you one very controversial example to let asked off of. Okay. Most societies throughout most of the world had a concept that you had to have a good reason to get divorced. Different sides, different rules, different thresholds. They weren't always fair, they weren't always nice, but there was an idea that you can't just say, I want out, and then voila, the marriage dissolves. That you need, you need a good reason to, for a divorce to be granted. Um, in the case, you know, Judaism has its rules, secular countries had their rules, okay. Around 50 years ago, what happened in many Western countries? They changed the rules, which is that now you can get a divorce. Whichever party wants out, gets out. Do they need to provide a reason? No. Okay. Okay, well that's good. So now all the people who don't want to be in marriages that they're not into, then that's great, right? They can get out. What did that do to all the other marriages? They all stay the same? Or the dynamics of how all those other marriages work also change? They changed the They changed everything. In fact, one of the reasons why it's very hard for us when we read Torah to understand marriage is because this has changed so much our notion of we think of marriage as fundamentally an ongoing voluntary relationship. Because this idea that you can get out whenever you want exists in the secular world. If you have a sibling and you don't like them, can you just back out of having a sibling? Oh. So the thing is like this, Torah and we'll have the many, many cultures had the idea a wife and a husband are a family member. And you can't just untake, you can't just not be a family member. It just doesn't work like that. And so, like, we, we, will, we, will, we will, you know, it, granted it's a weird kind of family member because it was created family, so we can uncreate family. But uncreating family is not a simple matter. And if you have problems with family, you have to learn how to work it out. And that totally has changed the fabric of how we think about marriage. Better or worse than not getting into. So the idea that we can start messing around with how we create people and we're going to end up with the same kind of, you know, minds and psyches and desires that God envisioned when he said this is what a human being ought to be is not necessarily the case. Um, and the Ram actually says something like this in his guide for the perplexed, that he said Adam had many descendants who looked like him physically but did not have his essence. They were more like sophisticated chimpanzees. They didn't have, they could, they didn't have the essence of what it meant to be a human being. Wow. How? 
He says that was a result of the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like, how does that man's essence not pass off? What? Because the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil had a corrupting effect, and so it created this ability to pass on a, the, the animalistic side without the true humanity, according to the Rambam. There's different explanations there. So it's, it's like, yes, it's true when we get into the science and the nuclear things, but how much that's actually going to allow us to keep having people as God meant people to be is an interesting question, to which we should all remain agnostic about that we don't know the answer to. Not know. Yeah. All right. Tomorrow we will not do the back philosophy. We'll do the. Uh, well, we're going to take everything we learned the last two days and then talk more about.